Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins. If you're attending the NAMM show in January, stop by the Collings booth to say hello to the team, get hands-on with their selection of customised acoustics and electrics, and check out some exciting new prototypes they're working on for 2024. They'll also have a few of their world-class artists on hand demoing various instruments. And if you can't attend, don't forget to follow their Instagram and Facebook accounts throughout the show for photos, videos, and the latest news. Collings guitars are hand-built from the sound up in Austin, Texas. This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, the home of Roots Music Instruction. If one of your 2024 resolutions is to improve as a musician, Peghead Nation is the place to go. They have 65 streaming video courses for guitar, mandolin, banjo, fiddle, dobro, bass and ukulele from some of the leading names in acoustic music. Courses cover bluegrass, old time, Irish music and swing, plus lessons dedicated to improvisation, theory and ear training. Your first course is just $20 a month and you can add more for $10. Try any course free for a month with the promo code JAMALONG. Make 2024 a year of more music at pegheadnation.com. Hi, this is Martin Simpson, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jamalong, the podcast for anyone and everyone who loves bluegrass. My guests on Bluegrass Jamalong this week are Martin Simpson and Tom Utes, and they are going to talk about a fantastic new record they've got called Nothing But Green Willow, the songs of Mary Sands and Jane Gentry. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. How are you doing? It's good to be here. It's a really, really cool record. I'm really enjoying it. And there's so many themes like within there we can talk about. Um, but I'd love to just start with a little bit about how the project came about and why you chose these particular songs, because there's such a rich history of sort of European folk song that's made its way over to the States and became its own thing. And then it's sort of made its way back again. And I find that always really interesting. Uh, but it would be great to hear how this came about in the first place. Well, I think I think over to Tom for the for the initial idea. Okay. Um, well, I had this had had this collection for a number of years, and I was aware that it's sort of as close to the horse's mouth as we can get in terms of pre what we consider old time music, certainly bluegrass music and so on. So uh, it's distinctly American music, but it's also distinctly English music, and I wanted. So I was fascinated by it. I wanted to do something with it, but it's a fairly large collection, so you have to have some kind of angle unless you want to just cherry-pick a song here and a song there, and that, that didn't seem to make too much sense to me. Um, and then when I was introduced to Martin by Topic Records, we stumbled across the fact that these two women, Mary Sands and Jane Gentry, both had contributed an extraordinarily large number of songs to this collection, especially Jane Gentry, who had contributed about 80 and, and Mary Sands about 30 or 40, I think. And so then we figured out that they both lived about 10 miles from each other in Western North Carolina. And that was even more um, astonishing to us because then we went like, well, did they know each other? Did they ever see each other? Did they know that they all, that they were singing these songs, some of the same songs? And so that became the angle of the, of the record to pick songs that those two women had contributed. And then, we both picked, we, we made a list of the hundred some songs and then Martin picked six and I picked six and we took it from there. One of the things that always occurs to me every time we talk about this is, I mean, Tom was just talking about the fact that these, these women lived very close to each other. 
And I, I, I wonder to what a degree this, this music was widely social music. For instance, I've, I, you know, I was just playing a festival in, in Suffolk um, where uh, they billet you at a pub. And the pub has been the centre for collecting traditional songs since the 1950s. I mean, Alan Lomax recorded there. You know, all kinds of people have gone there, made records. Topic have put out several records which were recorded at this pub, which is called The Ship at Black's Hall. And, and it occurred to me, and it's kind of been on my mind with regard to these two women, were they social singers or were they... What's what's called by uh, the Scots folk song collectors kitchen singers, just people mm. that basically sang for their family, sang at home, and I I love thinking about that. I wonder if these people actually were social singers, or if they were just people who sang in their family, but they, but they were sufficiently lauded for it that they were sought out. You know, that's a that's an interesting well, you know, one. Jane Gentry ran a boarding house in in uh, Hot Springs, Hot Springs, North Carolina. So yeah. she may have entertained people, you know, the boarders mm. that stayed there. And if Madison County, which is where both women are from, has a long history of ballad singing, and it's still going on today. There's still ballad singers there today. Some of the Gentry family, and so we could probably find out a little bit about that. I'm reasonably sure that Mary Sands would have been a kitchen singer and not somebody who performed mm. in public. But then she was known as Singing Mary. You know, that was... A singing Mary, yeah. yeah. <laughs> who knows? We don't know. We don't. And, what, and so like, we know that um, Cecil Sharp went out and collected these songs in Appalachia. Um, but what do we... Like, for people who don't know about Cecil Sharp, what's what's the sort of the brief intro to kind of the context of how these songs came to be put in these in this collection? Well, Cecil Sharp um, legendarily stumbled across English folk music by accident. He was visiting a friend, uh, I think in 1905, thereabouts, and, and the friend employed a gardener. And as he was talking to his friend in the living room of this house, he became aware of the fact that the gardener was outside singing a song called The Seeds of Love. And Cecil Sharp heard this and went, what is this? What is this extraordinary, beautiful thing that's happening in the garden of this house? And that, that's what people say was his trigger for launching into a lifetime of pursuing English folk music. You know, he, once he'd heard this music, he then became aware of the fact that it was a massive and very valuable, but very threatened um in his mind i think largely because of the the move from country to town you know the industrial revolution was clearly responsible for a lot of loss of english music uh had he but known it the first world war was going to uh, do much worse than that i think but he didn't know that at that time so he just launched himself into this into this idea that he would collect this music, he would help save this music, and when he he was no go ahead. I was going to say, and when he was offered the opportunity to investigate the fact that in the USA 
there appeared to be a lot of survival of this music. He he was very excited about that. And it was a very challenging thing that he did, actually, to take up that investigation. He was a very good musician himself. He was a very good piano player. He composed a couple of um, shorter operas, I think, even. And so he uh, he was an educated person who understood the beauty and the complexity of, of this folk music from a different perspective. Um, so Martin left off that where 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 Martin left off is when okay now Cecil Sharp learns this music some of some of this music has survived in Appalachia because he's uh, he has he's befriended a lady called Olive Dame Campbell who uh, together with her husband was running a couple of schools in in Appalachia and so he was in 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 the United States in 1916 and he was. To, uh, he was lecturing on Shakespeare, right, on A Midsummer Night's Dream? I think he was helping with A Midsummer Night's Dream in uh, New York in some capacity, yeah. And then when that was over, he traveled to Appalachia with his assistant, Maude Carpelli's, and they went by train as far as they could, which in North Carolina was Asheville, North Carolina, and then they went. They traveled by foot. They traveled on horseback or on, on by a horse-drawn cart it was very rough terrain it still is rough terrain today there although you know there's a couple of roads coming through but not a lot um they just they visited the people that olive dame campbell knew about and then they just went by by word of mouth you know who do you know who knows more songs well there's somebody over here there's somebody over there and so they went from they went to uh, western north carolina to east tennessee to southwestern virginia and to east kentucky which is that that's just part of what makes southwestern Appalachia so interesting is that it's all, you know, just this mountainous region where all of these where these four states come together, and it was it was rough travel and Sharp was not in good health, and uh, he would but nevertheless he he took it upon him to to visit all these remote places. They both uh, hated the food. They wrote about how much they hated the food. They carried raisins and chocolate because they would refuse to. They they just couldn't stomach that people were eating, as they said, everything was drenched in, in lard and people ate a lot of pork because in Appalachia, you couldn't, people were too poor to, to eat beef. And also the terrain doesn't lend itself to raising cattle because it's too mountainous. So uh, the meat that people ate was, was pork. And, and um, Cecil Sharp was actually by choice a, a, a vegetarian and a very delicate character. So, and actually, and Maud Carpelis was Jewish. So, it wasn't going to work for them that diet for either <laughs> it wasn't of them. Going to work with the pork. No, no. <laughs> but anyway, so the, um, he would write down the the music, and she would write down the lyrics. And in that, and he was very meticulous. He wrote down the scales. He wrote down where he collected the song, who sang the song to him. They meticulous were very meticulous in in the um, in labeling the different versions of the songs that they collected, and so on. And it's really interesting because you were saying about the terrain being like pretty mountainous and not being many roads. And these two women live 10 miles apart, but 10 miles in that kind of terrain can be like 100 miles in other terrain. I was wondering whether there was like a regionality to the, the material they collected out there, whether there were pockets within Appalachia of like almost separate musical pockets where stuff had just arrived in this place and settled and it was quite different from 25 miles down the road or whatever. I think I'm not sure how clear that would have been at that point. I think if you follow it down the line, you know, you get to a point where um, in the 60s, people 
people who had heard recordings of the um, the musicians who were commercially recorded in the 1920s and early 30s, people who, who heard that, people from New York City went down there and discovered at that point extraordinary regionality, I think, in terms of, you know, there is, for instance, the Galax style of fiddle and banjo playing. There's all There are these pockets where stylistically people's accompaniments um, developed in different directions. I'm not so sure that vocally it would have been as clear, as clearly defined when Cecil Sharp was collecting those songs. I think it might have been a little less defined than that. What do you think about that, Tom? Yeah, I think it was too early to know. I think... It, I think uh, commercially recorded music helped with that. When, for instance, in 1927, Pierre recorded in Bristol, and then we know, oh, okay, the Stoneman family came from this part of Virginia, and they sounded like that. Yeah. And the Carter family came from over here, and they sang like that. So yeah. there was documentation. Prior to that, there was no sonic documentation. The Prior to the, the earliest country music, the earliest recording of country music was ironically made in Atlanta, Georgia, in a big mm. city. So... Um, before that, there is no recorded music, so it's hard to say what did, what the regional differences were. I, I think it's worth pointing out, being as we've touched on this in passing, that the folk song collectors were very often very, very clever classical musicians. You've got Cecil Sharp. Um, you've also got Percy Granger, who was an Australian. He came to England in 1905, he was a staggering concert pianist, a complete lunatic, it has to be said, an absolute madman. Um, but he he went to North Lincolnshire, where I'm from, and he set up a singing competition in the town of Brigg in order to basically bring singers out of the woodwork. And, and he was the first person to commercially record English traditional music. And again, you know, he's... He's recording unaccompanied singers, and uh, his absolute hero is a man called Joseph Taylor, who recorded a, a tune called Unto Brig Fair, which um, um, Percy Granger then gave to his friend Delius, who made a beautiful classical piece of music out of this. And and that was that was very much Ralph Vaughan Williams, another folk song collector, composer, classical musician. But then, you know, those, I mean, Percy Granger came from Australia to England to do that. But Cecil Sharp alone w went to the States and investigated what he thought might be, as it was, as it was said, a pocket of pure Elizabethan English. Which it wasn't. It Which wasn't. it was not. It's a common, no. a common misperception that people in Appalachia are of pure Elizabethan stock. They were not. A lot no. of them were. Um, but it was much, a much more diverse culture as people think. There were a lot of African-American people there, which Sharp also experienced and wasn't very happy about it. He didn't think no. that they had anything to contribute. He's often criticized for not collecting more uh, comprehensively. But in fairness, it has to be said, he only sought out to look for English songs. He didn't look for Irish songs. He didn't look for African-American songs. He only no. looked for that. So he has he, he, he was still a... a he can be forgiven to some degree for, for, for that. And he was also very much man of his time. 
and that there's yeah. no way around that. I just got back from being in on the Isles in Scotland, and they are currently um, every everywhere on the Isle of Lewis. All the shop windows are full of posters advertising the fact that so many people from Lewis and from Skye and other islands went off to North America in its very much in its larger sense. But, it, you mm. know, in the Appalachians, North Carolina, full of Scots, you know, and actually quite a lot of the ballads that Sharp collected are really Anglo-Scots ballads. And that's an interesting one where, you know, you get a very Scottish song but along the lines, it becomes a much more English song. <laughs> I could talk about this for years, actually, because it fascinates me. There's so many places, just even touching on the sort of the classical composers and like, you know, where in the 60s, people like Benjamin Britten took these collected folk songs. And there's a whole other conversation there. But what, one of the things I found really interesting that um, we were just talking about is is when these songs were collected, because it was sort of in that last decade before there was recorded music. So these songs yeah. are written down. Um, and also my understanding is that um, most of the performers were unaccompanied. So you've got a melody and you've got some words. And that's a, such what, a pure, all, pure form of a song. All yeah. unaccompanied. Yeah. Because once yeah. you start hearing the Bristol recordings and you've got guitar or banjo or fiddle with something, and it, it there's a structure and a heart, like a harmonic structure all of a sudden that isn't there unaccompanied. It's a really interesting starting yes. point. Yep. Yeah. I, one of the things that struck me when I was a kid listening to this music, you know, in its de developed form for the first time was this sense of, you know, the, the acoustic guitar turns up in lots and lots of early recordings of old-timey music. But it's very clear that actually a lot of those guitar players, I really weren't sure whether they were playing a minor or a major chord to accompany these tunes. And uh, sometimes it really sticks out like a sore thumb. You know, if you listen to the banjo players, they hardly ever do that because they were playing in modal tunings. They'd, they'd kind of um, come across the sense of, right, this music doesn't go C major, you know, F major. It actually can be C with no third in it whatsoever. It can be a, diff a very different thing. So I, I think one of, the, one of the really strong things about the Sharp collection is that it accurately records those modalities. Don't, would you agree with that, Tom? Absolutely. And, you know, those can be viewed differently. You know, like you can interpret, for instance, to say something very simple, you can interpret a C major scale as an A minor scale. Um, so he interpreted them a certain way based on how they started and what they ended on. Mm. But they're, they're very, they're fairly complex to harmonize today. And in, in our case, there's a couple of songs that we play them once around in the key of D modal, and then we play them again in the key of A modal, and they work mm -hmm. in either key. And then there are songs, several of them, that end on the dominant chord. So you have to decide, is the la the chord that they end on actually really the dominant, the dominant chord, or is it the tonic? And it just floats a lot more, which yeah. makes it very interesting. 
I think it does. Something that something with that that goes along with um like the structure of these songs are essentially a whole bunch of verses or a whole bunch of verses and choruses. There's no middle eights, there's no like there's very little in terms of um like the the core material doesn't tend to vary. It starts off and just continues to tell you more of a story in the same form. But you can vary what you put behind that and where you, there's all sorts of things with it. But it's a very um there's something very pure about that in that you can build energy and narrative and all sorts of stuff around this thing because it's such a simple structure and I love that. I do. Yeah, yeah. I find that incredibly exciting. You know, the whole I, I've just been working on a couple of ballads which are in one case very very familiar to me from when I was a teenager. In 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 the second case it's completely new. And they're both Anglo Scots ballads and they're both melodically fabulous. And uh, and there's so much you can do within you know, well, here's a verse and there's another nineteen verses which are exactly the same. You don't have to make them the same. The tune remains the same, the harmonization, you know, the sense of tension, the sense of do I would am I gonna change chords at all in this? You know, all that kind of stuff makes it incredibly exciting material to work with, to arrange. Yeah, I think it's a it's a very tight framework. But I maintain the belief that a tighter framework often in music actually makes for a broader palette of dynamic possibilities. Um, look at the blues, for instance, or look at early country music, or look at this music. That's also why Martin and I decided to create a tight framework when arranging these songs and just sticking with two guitars for the most part. There's a, a mandolin here and there, and there's a fiddle in two cases, but that's it. And if you limit yourself, all of a sudden the dynamic range becomes so much bigger because nothing is holding down the low end. Nothing is dictating a rhythm. Um, and to me, that's super exciting to work like that. And you can hear that also, for instance, my favorite example on this record is Emily Portman when she's singing the last verse of Fair Annie, where she sings in this beautiful plain. She tells the story, and then there's this joy in just two words that she sings, and it's just a, it's like a, a, a mountain is moving emotionally because she takes her time. You know, she's not over singing. She's not mm -hmm. trying to to impress anybody, and that's the beauty of this kind of music. And that was also the beauty for me in seeing, I think the, it was interesting to see how the more bluegrass-influenced people in the States interpreted these songs and then how the more folk-leaning people in England interpreted these songs and how Martin and I both tried to, in a respectful way, try to interact with that. That, to me, is endlessly exciting. I could, if, if I mean, we unfortunately only took us a week to make this record. I wish it would have <laughs> taken us five because it's yeah. the best fun i've ever had playing well it's really cool as well because there's those two guitars as you say but but there's you know tom you play pretty much the standard tuning with a flat pick martin you pretty much don't you play finger style <laughs> with you know Correct. like various tunings um and just the combination of that but also there's something about uh that kind of instrumentation and you say how long it took to record the record i i can hear listening to it you two following a singer through a song like you can hear choices being made in the moment this is they don't sound like arrangements you've come to and gone you do this you do this that's your space you stay there you can feel 
you can feel a conversation happening between you and the song and the singer. We, <laughs> I just read a, an interview that Tom did where he said the fact of actually sitting down with another guitar player and knowing within two minutes that it was going to work was a very major moment. And it was for me too. I mean, it was actually completely joyous because, you know, there were so many things that were not given at all in in the way that we set about doing this. Okay, I hadn't met Tom. I knew, I knew I've heard some of his playing, not a lot. I knew he was a great guitar player. I knew he played in standard tuning with a flat pick most of the time. But there's, there's an awful lot beyond that. And we sat down, and the first thing we played was uh, Tom's version of the Gypsy Laddie. And we literally knew, by having played it through probably once, we knew that it was going to work because we both of us have this same sense of the importance of the melody, the importance of the story, the sense of time and dynamic that occurs in in this kind of music, you know, and and it, it that that piece is in time. It's very much in time. When by the time we got to Odessa settles, we then we, as as a friend of mine used to say, we're walking in tall cotton then because mm-hmm. basically. Odessa was singing so freely that we were literally listening for her intake of breath to know when the downbeat, such as it is, was going to come. And, and I listened back to that, and it fills me with joy and, the se- and a sense of humble accomplishment, actually, because that was a hell of a thing to sit down with Odessa and learn how she wanted to sing that within the space of probably four takes altogether, really having established, first of all, what key it was going to be in, because she didn't know, we didn't know, you know. So I'm going, what about this? And, no, no, not that. Retune, retune. <laughs> what uh, Martin didn't finish this quote of mine in the interview. That, in, that quote goes on <laughs> to say, it is an unusual thing that two guitar players get along so well because most guitar players are selfish and a pain in the ass. Which yeah. include, I include myself in that, <laughs> proudly. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, no, um, I tell you what, timing is such an important thing. And I have spent the over 40 years of playing guitar con- constantly questioning my timing. And then I'm, I know I can play to a click. I know I can, I'm rock solid, but that's only the beginning of timing. It's where do I put it? Where in in relation to that reference point, and then every once in a while you get together with a with another player, and you play and you go, no, it's good, it's exactly where it needs to be, but somebody else needs to show you somebody else needs to show you that, and not say it, but just show you that. I've been told so many times that my timing is like really off. <laughs> people say, you can't play in time. And I just have to kind of go, oh, really? Can't I? Well, actually, yeah, I can. I can play to a click if I want to. I hate playing to a click. And, you know, one of the one of the major things that happened to me as a musician was working with June Tabor, who's a completely brilliant singer, 
absolutely no sense whatsoever of of what she's doing in terms of timing because essentially she's an unaccompanied singer and so you know i learned i learned to hear when she would extend a line and and i've throughout my career now i've spent I've spent years learning to play out of time and when people say your you, your timing's really weird you can't play in time i just have to laugh you know because it's a joke well and if, you're, can... if you're a sorry if you're accompanying a singer and he's singing a song that says a farmer's daughter living near a dreadful story you soon shall hear blah 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 and then the next line it goes oh she went until she come to some farmer's door and that that takes up the first line which is in completely a different time signature to the previous first line of the previous verse you know what are you going to do you're going to make a mistake or are you going to listen and do it right uh, yeah and on a on a mercenary level if you're not playing with the singer you're not going to have that gig very long oh, so no. You know, I've learned that playing with Nancy. I've learned it with Maura O'Connell. With with Maura, we had the the joke that we used to ask her, "Hey, Maura, how do you want it? Too fast or too slow?" <laughs> yeah. It's never right, but it always felt good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great, brilliant. Yeah, and I, I've seen you play live, Martin, and um, and that's one of the things that struck me most is that willingness to give a phrase the amount of time that phrase needs, rather than yeah. kind of you know, here's the structure. Let's shoehorn that in there, and it's and it's it's. There's a sort of, uh, there's a question that interests me around that actually is around the process of collecting these songs and writing them down and having to notate a rhythm because that's how we write things down. So even sort of pre-recording stuff, just the act of mm. notating something and it being this note out of the, you know, the pitches we have in Western music and it being these bar lines. And it's the sort of question I have there around how much it's a bit like pinning music down like a butterfly on a board almost and yeah at the same time it's it's sort of like you when you interpret these songs you have the ability to free it again which you don't with the butterfly because it's been pinned down and it's long gone and that's <laughs> yeah. you know i think i think what people were trying to do was give you a sketch really and the best collectors actually included quite a lot of extra information um they really did and uh and and that's the thing about this music is that i mean percy granger uh collected from joseph taylor and joseph taylor uh, you know there are these recordings of him and he would sing um the f the first verse of a song would be entirely minor and then the next verse would be entirely major was it deliberate you know he wasn't being he wasn't being clever that's how he felt it mm. and and i think that's brilliant i love that kind of thing i you know sharp even sometimes went like well repeat this melody twice but then you do when you do it the third time hold that last note a quarter note longer which of course today we just laugh about that and go like that's a classical the perception of this kind of music from a classically trained musician and What's what's great about interpreting this material, for instance, in, in the context of our record, is that I sent Martin the melodies. He 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 perceives it one way. I perceive it another way. Then in walks Faye Heald, and she hears it a completely different way. And there's the there's the history of how you treat folk music. Everybody hears it differently, and you figure out 
a way to do it. And that's the beauty of it. It changes under your feet and yet it stays the same. And that's one of my favorite moments on the record is when, you know, that, that song with Faye shifts from being in four to being in three. It just does this change that feels so right. And the breath that you give it for her to kick that off is that little clap that just sort of sets the tone. And in so many, her clap. so many music instances, people go, well, that's, that's wrong. We need to perfect that. And we need to like, and it's just, it's so right. I can't imagine it not being like that now. Well, Faye, Faye was the first person that I assigned a song to. And I think it's worth thinking about that, the fact that we, we did that, you know, we went, okay, well, here's six songs. Now, you sing this song, you sing this mm. song. It could have gone horribly wrong at that point. <laughs> but the first song that, that I, I immediately went, oh, this is Fay. This is absolutely Fay. And I gave it to her and I said, as soon as you've heard it, get back to me, tell me what you think. She got back to me and said, great. It wasn't until the day of the recording that she turned up and she said, I hope you don't mind, but I did this, I did this thing with the time signature. So she changed the, the verses into a waltz, you know, at reverting back to the original time signature on the choruses. And it's brilliant. It's absolutely lovely. And in fact, she got in touch with me a couple of days ago. She's out on the road with Sam Sweeney uh, at the moment and, uh, and Rob Harbron, and they're going to do that song oh, in their sets with concertina and fiddle, which is brilliant, you know. And that's an interesting one to sort of looking at how you assign songs to voices because it'd be really cool to talk about some of the voices you've got on here because you've got there's people on here who like are very safe pairs of hands in terms of being able to interpret something and um just in somebody like Tim O'Brien who can sing anything and make it sound like it's three hundred years old and it was written yesterday at the same time. Um and there's some names that will be very familiar to a, a sort of bluegrass audience like Sierra Hull and Justin Moses and Tim O'Brien, but there's some names that people may not be so familiar with. And one of the beautiful bits of song choice here is the uh, track with Odessa Settles, where it's a song about somebody coming to a different country. But when you add in um, kind of her heritage to that, it totally amps up what that lyric means in a way that wouldn't have been, you know, the same sung by a different person. And I well, think. Or, or does, go ahead. I was going to say, I think, in, in a sense, what Odessa did with that track is 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 beyond exciting. It's beyond important. It's absolutely fantastic because her background as a gospel singer, you know, I, if you if you go back and you look at the Lomaxes. American folk song books in the, in the introduction, they describe the difference between how white singers and black singers sing, and and it's it's all it's almost discomforting, you know. They talk about the much more expression in a, in an African American performance than it might be in a white performance. And if you, for instance, if you if you watch Amy Lou Harris sing. You're looking at somebody who hardly moves their mouth at all, you know. That's a deadpan, a brilliant, brilliant singer. Deadpan, tiny, mm -hmm. tiny mouth movement, you know. Gospel music, 
which is Odessa's background, is a completely different bag of nuts. And she managed <laughs> effortlessly to incorporate the, the emotive power of gospel music into this extraordinarily emotive text and emotive melody, but in a way that I've never heard anybody do that before. And as you rightly pointed out, the context that she is an African-American went first into this country in 1849. You know, she sings the opening line. It's so powerful. And I think I am so proud of that. If we hadn't done anything else, that would be a hell of a thing to have done, I think. Absolutely. She is, uh, Odessa is from, from, her dad was in a famous gospel uh, group called the Fairfield Four, and she was in a famous gospel group called the Princely Singers, who were influential uh, in representing um, Nashville in the civil rights struggle in a musical way. She is from Nashville. Her um, uncle and aunt ran a, a hotel in Nashville, downtown Nashville in Printer's Alley, which was traditionally a, 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 a where the black music clubs, wherever Jimi Hendrix played and James Brown and people like that stayed at her family's um, hotel. Her uncle was a bootlegger, so he lived apart from the family. So in case something happened to him, it wouldn't happen to the family. It was, it's unbelievable. Every time I see Odessa, she tells me more stories and I'm just like freaking out going like you have to, she's, she's actually a nurse practitioner, which is the equivalent of a doctor. Uh, yeah. Often nurse practitioners here are more knowledgeable than doctors because they're more hands-on and she works at Vanderbilt. But she's going to retire in December, and I hope she's going to write a book about her musical life and otherwise. She's a wonderful I, person. You, see, just, you just blew my head off there because I didn't know any of that stuff that you just said. I knew about the well, Fairfield Four, but you and I need she to told talk. Me, <laughs> she, told, she told me, you know, when I started working at Vanderbilt, there was no way for a black woman to make a living in music. And so I, I couldn't. Yeah. And, but... It's 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 just beyond what we've what we have done to these people that they're even willing to talk to us is a, is a miracle. But she's one of the kindest people I know. There you go. It was very interesting to, for us in England to get Angeline Morrison to yeah. sing on this project because you know Angeline is a brilliant brilliant, brilliant human being. And she's been involved in music in all different ways throughout her life. And her background is, I think, uh, Anglo-Scots and Caribbean. And and she got into folk music and, and just became more and more uncomfortable going, well, where are my people in this, you know? Where in British folk music, in English folk music, are people of colour. There aren't any. And so she made that record called The Sorrow Songs, which basically she wrote traditional style songs about um, black people in British society. And it's it's hugely important, hugely important. So it's great. But, but it, it again, it speaks to the to the it, it speaks to these songs being there's the possibility to do something with these songs because they're not tied to autobiography they're they are about archetypes so you can interpret them and reinterpret them and people of color can sing them and people like me who were born in germany can sing them mm -hmm. and it's that's the beauty you can't do that with songs that are chained to the autobiography of the writer 
No. Um, and because these songs have no writer, that's a completely different story. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. It's mu musically speaking, it's the beauty of it, as we've already discussed in terms of harmonizing a melody, in terms of the fluidity of rhythm, and the, in the recontextualization of the narrative as well, which is amazing. And there's a rich... Show me... Show, go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. I was going to say, there's a rich tradition like in folk music of people singing songs that are from the point of view of somebody from the opposite gender of them. People don't, if a female folk singer sings a song in the first person that's about a man or the other way around, people don't really bat an eyelid. It's not seen as like, you're not supposed to believe the singer is the person in the story in the way that you are when somebody writes an autobiographical song and you think, well, actually that's about you. And there's a, mm. just an acceptance of that being a reasonable thing to do that creates all sorts of space for reinterpretation of things. I, I think that's one of the things, one of the most important things as a performer that I've learned about doing this music since I was, you know, a kid, is that actually you can be, when you're performing a song, you can be anybody. You can take on the persona of anybody. And so long as you believe it, the audience will get it, you know. If you if you have any doubt yourself, you know, shouldn't do it. But actually <laughs> it's it's marvellous. I love that. Was there a temptation um when you were sort of like casting this for want of a better phrase, to just use female voices because these were songs that had been collected from women? Or was that never a consideration? No. Never crossed my mind. It didn't not it didn't not for me. a second. <laughs> I mean, and, I, and and it was not a conscious decision. It's just like I just never thought about that. Hmm. No, likewise, exactly that. You know, it was completely clear that, were, that there were a group of singers who were, you know, in the ring, who who just seemed like right. These people, these people, not these men and these women, but these people could all do this really, really well. Um. So it, it was not an issue. It wasn't something that, uh, it wasn't a conscious decision at all. And it's, it's really interesting just hearing the range of voices as well, because you've got somebody like, um, like Sierra Hull, who has such a sort of contemporary sound in many ways, but is totally able to deliver an old song and to feel <laughs> like it's, yeah. you know, utterly meant. Well, Sierra is one of the finest musicians on the planet, and she's also incredibly smart. And so is her husband, Justin Moses, who plays and sings on this track. And they're steeped in the tradition, in their tradition of, of bluegrass music, um, which is kind of funny to say that somebody's steeped in bluegrass music because bluegrass music was incepted in 1945. Um, so it's like, it's we think it's old music, but it's really not. Mm. But... Um, Sierra and Justin are, as anybody in contemporary bluegrass music, are hugely influenced by Tony Rice. And Tony Rice and Norman Blake recorded that song on one of the Blake and Rice records. And so I thought that's, well, here's a clear, here, here's an, not an obvious choice, but here's an exciting choice to make. They have heard this song before. Now let's present them with an older version of this and see how what they do with it. And I, I, I think that speaks so nicely to the continuity of the of folk music when it's when it's used and not just left in a book yeah know? and people have heard dot watson sing that song as well and so it's a familiar I was just song gonna say, of, yeah yeah it's dot probably watson's, dot watson's album home again um mm -hmm. 
I got that, I think, when I was 15, and it's, it remains uh, just such an important record to me because, you know, he's doing Geordie, he's doing Matty Groves, he's, he's doing big ballads. He's, it's a phenomenal record, actually. Absolutely. And completely in line with this, I think. And just another performer who was just so, like you go back to that point of yours, Martin, about if you deliver a song and you mean it, you'll take people with you. And Doc Watson's maybe the prime ex- example of just did things with conviction as Doc Watson and you just went, okay, I'll go over there. That sounds good. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And it's an interesting point you sort of touched on there, Tom, about obviously anybody can interpret these songs and any, you, anybody can be anybody singing a song and, you didn't grow up in Appalachia, Martin. You grew up in England, but you lived in the States for for quite a while. Um, yeah. And there is something about that, uh, like just my experience of doing this podcast for two years, that the sort of the bluegrass and acoustic world in general hasn't gone, what are you doing? Just a random British guy talking about our music. If you're interested and you're willing to be part of it, it feels like a very accepting space. I, oh, without I, a doubt. Yeah. yeah, it is. I, I, I mean, I, I, I was lucky enough to live in the states uh, for fourteen years, but up until that point, I mean, the very first music that I heard that moved me, that made me want to be a singer and a musician, was American music. And you know, when I moved to the states, I thought I'm going to be so out on a limb here, and I was not at all out on a limb was absolutely accepted from the very off you know i mean just in ridiculous ways like steve miller saw me play at a nam show and uh, and he came up to me and he literally i was playing a, demonstrating a martin guitar and he came up at the end of it literally lifted me off the floor and just went that was fantastic i want you to come <laughs> and like I'm going to do some blues gigs. Will you come and open up on these blues gigs, you know, at the Fillmore West? And uh, and, it, and so I would open the show and then there'd be a young black blues musician and uh, and then Steve Miller's band would go on and, and do their thing and it was great. And the backstage was fantastic because I was working with, you know, guys from Mississippi and, and Louisiana, and they were going, what are you doing? <laughs> what tuning is that? Show me that. You know, and it was just, I mean, I felt like I was walking on water, to be honest. I worked with um, Eddie Shaw, who was, he was the saxophonist for Howling Wolf, and his son, Van Shaw, was a guitar player, and I played with him at a bunch of blues festivals in the 80s, you know, and uh, he had he had dreadlocks and smoked a corncob pipe and was from Chicago. He was a very interesting character altogether. And I'd done a couple of gigs with him, and he came up to me and he said, you know, you made that record called A Closer Walk With Thee, which is an acoustic guitar record of gospel tunes, which I made when I lived in California. Uh, and I said, yeah, he said, it's one of my favorite records. I listen to that all the time. My head went, Poof. <laughs> and that you know that's the thing proper musicians actually they don't go you can't do that you mustn't do that don't do that they just go 
right? You do what you do. And, uh, and, and, and you will, Matt, you will know, you will see that you will experience that when you go to Raleigh here next week or in two weeks, it's a very family type situation. And, and, uh, People are honored that people from other parts of the world are interested in, in this kind of music and mm -hmm. in their music. And so you'll, it's, it's going uh, it's gonna to be a lot of banjos, but you'll, <laughs> you'll enjoy it. <laughs> and what, was the, what was your hey, route from... Hey. <laughs> what was your route from sort of like the Black Forest to, to Nashville then, Tom? How did you make that transition? Yeah. Well, I started playing music as a child early on. I played uh, flute and piano. And then I saw when I was 11 and a half years old, I saw the country singer Bobby Bear on a German TV show. And just something snapped in my soul. And I, I borrowed my sister's guitar and started playing that day and decided literally that day that this is all I'm going to do, want to do with my life. And, and that's that's what I did. It's when you're that young and that moved by music, the decision to dedicate your life to it is very easy. It'd be harder to do that later when you think about other things. Um, and then it was just, you know, I mean, I lived in a very rural um, area. We drove to the next big city that had a record store of any kind of uh, importance, maybe once or twice a year. And I had limited funds, obviously, and I'd buy records not knowing who they were by. One of them was a record by Doc Watson called Down South. And um, I bought it because the cover spoke to me. I didn't know who Doc Watson was or who Merle Watson was. It was just I saw these two people sitting on the front porch of a, of a country store. And there's a little child sitting at the, a little boy sitting on the bottom of the steps listening. And today I, I often look at this record cover and go like, man, it could have been me actually listening to those guys. And so it was one record at a time. And then, you know, playing studying classical guitar in university for a couple of years, playing rock and blues music to make a living. And then when I was in my late 20s, my wife and I decided that we really had to make the move to America because she had lived there for a while and wanted to move back. And I always wanted to go to Nashville. And so we we be, got a green card after a while and became lived here, moved here, became citizens. And it's the best decision I've ever made. Um, I'm not saying that everybody should do this. I'm also not saying that it's something extraordinary if the music moves you to do that, then go ahead and do it. Um, mm -hmm. And if you want to go back like Martin did, then you go back. And if you want to stay here, you stay here. It's, I wouldn't recommend it to leave your family, but I also would highly recommend it. It's just whatever, whatever works, you know, and for me, this has been the best, literally these past 20 plus years here in Nashville, so many good things have happened to me. None of, not one of those things would have happened if I would have stayed in Germany, not one. And I still would have played music and made a living playing music, but that's not the point. The point is to chase this. For me, the point is to chase this music further back and further back. And that this record is a part of that, to get closer to the heart and soul of the music, to understand it better, not so much on an intellectual level, but to feel it. And that's why those moments working with Martin were so precious, because in those moments, you know that you've made the right decision. You've, you're doing it. You're doing what you, what you wanted to do for your entire life. And it's, effortless but it's very difficult but you invested your whole life in learning how to do it and the really funny thing is that, that that i mean that's beautiful it's effortless but it's very difficult but throughout my life because you know when i was a kid starting to play the guitar and deciding at about the same age 
you know, like 12, right, okay, I have a guitar now. This is all I'm going to do. I know it's all I'm going to do. I, I basically refuse to do anything else, no matter how hard the pressure. Um, you just you just go, okay, people aren't going to give me a load of gigs when I'm 14 and 15. How will I, <clears throat> excuse me, how will I make a living doing this? And I realized really early on that the best possible thing that I could do is teach. Um, because if you're going to teach, you have to really understand what it is that you do. And so that's what I did. I, I would have students and I'd know that they'd come along with a load of questions. And so I'd sit down and go, what, what actually am I doing here? How can I describe this to somebody else? The moment you, you do that, you internalize it. <clears throat> and my entire life has been a succession of internalizing this music and understanding, you know, what it is that I'm doing so I can, A, describe it to other people, but actually triple A so I can do it better myself. It's it, And it, what a fantastic thing to do for a living, really. It's not surprising. Guitar players are so selfish, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's that thing you talked about. You know, I, I interviewed Sierra Hull um, relatively recently, and she said exactly the same thing, that you spend your time like working, 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 thinking about stuff, like analysing, and then you reach the point where you're about to actually make the music and you leave all that out the door and you just go in and mm. sort of be it almost. And so in those moments, I guess it is effortless, but only because you put the effort in to get to those moments. Yeah, it's taken me 59 years to be this effortless. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. I'm going to have to take off. That's all if good. that's okay. Yes. Do you have what you need, Matt? Yeah, it'd be good just to do a final like minute or two on like what's next. But I can do that with Martin if you need to go. Martin, you're right for another no, two I minutes. Can, I can, I can, I can do that, and then Martin can can take over. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, obviously this project took a relatively short amount of time to put together, uh, but it's it's just coming out now, and I wondered whether this was the starting point for investigating some more of these songs. Well, uh, I'm I'm sure it will be that uh, in whatever form that's going to be, I'd, whatever form that's going to take. I don't know yet, but Martin and I talked yesterday about I'm I'm really twisting his arm to come back over here so we can make another record. And what that's going to be, I don't exactly, I don't know, but I'm sure we'll find something that's that's going to be fun. Um, and in the meantime, I I have a studio here where I do a lot of other things and do a lot of work for TV and movie, and I teach at a, teach in the songwriting department at a university here in Nashville two days a week, and so it's always busy, but it's it's always good, and I'm always you know I have it's so nice having a studio in the house that's sort of a real high level adult playground. Um, oh, it is, it quite, is. It's nice, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. And it, it it couldn't be better. I'm I'm a very happy man. I I don't know what else to say. I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> well it's a wonderful record i've enjoyed listening to it and i've enjoyed talking about it as well and i would urge people to go and buy the physical copy of this because the packaging is so beautiful but there's also some really informative interesting insightful liner notes as well including a lovely essay written by ted olson of east tennessee state university that you know that just 
even if you listen to it streamed, it's worth buying the CD just to read the liner notes while you listen to it. Um, Amen. It's a, it's a wonderful record. And thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk about it. It's a total pleasure. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.